Sometimes when we tell our friends or family that we're off to Devon to take part in a silent retreat, sometimes uh, they react with uh, glee and even jealousy. Oh, fantastic, quiet. Other times it just doesn't, uh, just doesn't compute or register as a thing that would, uh, one would want to do. And I remember uh, some of my family members uh, when I was coming here for long retreats, and they seemed to, to sort of pick up the idea that, that it was about the silence itself, like how long one could go without speaking that it was some kind of competition or yogic feat to come here for a week or a month or whatever it is, as if, you know, similar to coming here for a month and trying not to go to the toilet for a month or something. (laughs) (laughs) As if that was the whole point. But when we look at uh, different spiritual traditions, and uh, particularly the the more mystical ones, the the deeper contemplative traditions, very, very often there is this love of silence that's sort of very much at the, um, the beating heart, almost, of, of the contemplative practice. And perhaps the contemplative journey is a journey, we could say, on one level, one aspect, it's a journey into the, the depths and the dimensions of silence could say that. And I know uh, quite a few traditions, uh, contemplative traditions, that actually don't have the wealth of um, precision of teaching around meditative technique that we have in this tradition. Very precise, and I as a teacher like to be very clear about instructions, etc. But there are traditions, there are many traditions that just don't have that whole aspect, and yet they have this aspect of silence. And a person, monks or nuns, spending years in monastery in this in this climate, this uh, atmosphere of silence, and just deepening in that, ripening, opening in that, and seeing some really quite remarkable transformation just coming out of the power of silence. And we might have, as, as uh, practitioners and being here, we might have different responses to the silence. Uh, sometimes, and people do report, walking in the front door and here. And there's a long history of silence in this building, not just from, uh, from we have been here, but before that it was a convent for uh, nuns. Walking in the front door and almost being struck by this awesomeness of the silence. It's actually something in the air, in the walls. I remember my first retreat at at a center in America and and just really being struck by the, the strength of it, the depth of it. And we could actually have the other response. I was reading an article, uh, recently by someone who came here for retreat and she said she was driving here terrified, first retreat, terrified of the prospect of silence. can be a very unfamiliar environment of silence. Or we might feel we might lose our bearings in the silence. 
or that in some way the science would unmask us, uh, render us naked in some way. And there's a immensity to the silence that we can also get a taste of. And we can have all those responses. Oftentimes, though, on retreat, and particularly on longer retreats, which is quite interesting, we can take the silence for granted. It's just like, that's just a rule that kind of we're supposed to be quiet because, I don't know, that's just the rule. And, and there's something about it, we just take it for granted. It's very easy to slip into that. I, uh, this is a sort of second-hand story, but I had a friend in the States, and she has a friend, who went on retreat to one of the um, big retreat centers there. And the retreat went by, and at the end of the retreat, they were sort of all having lunch and talking. And she said to another woman, I feel a bit guilty on the, on, you know, someday, I, uh, I walked all the way into town, two or three miles, and uh, bought a coffee. And, I f- you know, felt a bit guilty. And the other woman said to her, oh, honey, that's nothing. On the third night, a bunch of us went out for Mexican food and to see Titanic at the movies. <laughs> and I, like, like you, laughed um, quite hard at that. But then, then I, also, I also just, as it sort of said, I also thought, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's very nice and everything, but I also thought, you know, what, what are they missing? What, what, what is someone missing uh, by, by actually not giving themselves to the silence in that way. Mexican food, you can get it any time. Titanic, you know, get the DVD, you know, whatever. Uh, it's like that story of, uh, that Rumi tells, that the, the Sufi poet, of two frogs. And one is a frog that lives in the great ocean. He has the whole ocean to swim in, the depths and the, the vastness, the immensity of the ocean. And he decides to visit land... Uh, and he's walking around. He meets another frog who lives in a little puddle. And the frog that lives in the little puddle says, check out, my, check out my puddle. Isn't it pretty amazing? And uh, the frog from the ocean says, well, yeah, but, you know, I just can't explain something else. So what are we missing? What are we perhaps missing? And thinking that in our puddle uh, we have something pretty amazing. And of course, you know, of course, now we have the the both the blessing and the curse of the mobile phone. So it's quite possible to be on retreat and texting away or in the fields and making calls, etc. And I know uh, there's a monastery just over the other side of Exeter, Hartridge Monastery, and uh, they decided to ban mobile phones for one retreat. And what what a hoo ha it caused! Something can be quite addictive. This this thing. What are we missing, perhaps? And it's really, for me, it's really not about good yogi, bad yogi, and trying to be a good yogi or trying to keep the rules. I just, for, I for one, am totally not interested in that at all, uh, being good yogi. But there does seem to be, there does seem to be a real correlation, a real correspondence between those who devote themselves to silence, give themselves to silence, that seems to correlate with those who uh, are transformed deeply by practice, through practice, in practice. 
it's not uh, it's not just a random thing how we are relating to the silence and so what I want to go into tonight is not so much the, the rule of silence but actually silence as something very central to our practice because we can actually uh, as I said we can have all these um, attitudes to silence but silence is something that we can actually turn to can actually sometimes drop the technique and actually turn to the silence, listen to the silence, and in a way let that embrace us. And some, this is what I want to uh, go into a little bit tonight, the power involved in that, turning to the silence, listening to the silence. And some of you I know and uh, uh, like to get up very early, and it's really very, very quiet here in the early hours of the morning. Or if you've got the other biorhythm like I have and you'd like to stay up late, it gets very, very quiet here. There's such a stillness and a, a beauty. The night time is a, a beautiful time to practice. Nothing much else going on. And it doesn't have to confine itself, of course, to retreat. It can be, I remember living in the city in a suburb and, and uh, walking late at night. No one on the street, everyone in bed. And just the, the breeze moving through the trees. There's tremendous energy in the silence. It's, it's, it's um, uh, full of, of this potential energy, full of energy, something very pregnant in it. Thomas Merton, a wonderful Trappist monk, uh, died in the late 60s. He said, my life, my life is life as a monk, decades as a monk. Uh, much of it in silence. My life is a listening in silence. My life is a listening in silence. Beautiful. And not a listening for something. wasn't listening even for guidance from God or for information about this or that in the, in the universe or, or something. It's just, just listening to the silence. I should say right here, um, what I want to go into tonight, if I ever get to it, um, is not what's sometimes called the sound of silence. So that's a, that's a whole different thing where a person picks up on uh, a sort of high-pitched sound, humming that's in the ear. It's actually the central nervous system, and, and then meditates on that. Uses that in the meditation. That's uh, something else. I want to point more how the silence itself, the, ab- the absence, the silence can take us into something else, actually beyond objects. So listening to High-pitched sound in the ear is actually a kind of object. I want to point in a different direction tonight. One of the gifts of silence is that it can allow to percolate up, to rise up in the being, uh, our sense of what's really important to us, our sense of priority. So oftentimes because of busyness and because of distraction and all that, we're actually quite caught up in our life with what is not really so deeply important to us. Or what can seem deeply important, caught up in issues about money or living situation or career or what I could have done for a career or you know, romance, whatever it is. It seems to be really important. Actually, we come to the silence, and in a way, all that relatively trivial stuff can just descend, can settle, 
like like sediment uh, at the bottom of a lake, and something else begins to reveal itself, to sh- to uh, show itself in the being. Our sense of what's really important to us, our real sense of priority in in our life, priorities. And this is so important to be in touch with that, not to be consumed and distracted by what's less important. It's one of the one of the functions, the gifts of silence. Sometimes, in in the silence, in environments like this, we remember events from the past or situations from the past, and something is painful there. Oftentimes, something of Remorse comes up. We remember, oh, this thing that I did or didn't do, didn't say or did say. I didn't tell this person uh, that I loved them. Or I acted meanly or acted unkindly. And in the silence, in the openness of the silence, it comes up. And the heart feels it and it's painful. And in a way that too is one of the gifts of silence, not an easy one. And there's a real difference here. And how are we going to respond to that? If we respond and uh, making it guilt, guilt is about me. I'm terrible. I'm I'm making a mess. I I I I. Guilt is when the self wraps around it. Or can it be uh, more? I don't know if this is right d- dictionary definitions, but more about remorse. It's just telling me something about how I want to. Uh, act in the future. It's open-ended, it's future, it's creative. It's telling me about action, it's not defining the self. So guilt versus remorse. But that does happen in the silence. We do remember things that are, we wish we would have acted differently. And in the silence we face ourselves. In a, in a way, there's nowhere to hide. If we give ourselves to the silence, there's nowhere to hide. This is a beautiful gift. Again, sometimes a difficult one, but a beautiful one. We can face those places that we've turned away from, that we've ignored, that we've pushed away inside ourselves. And we face those and embrace them. Sometimes, too, in the silence, a person comes and they're on retreat and some major life choice seems to be pressing. I need to decide, what shall I do this or shall I do that? What shall I do? Make a choice. And uh, the tendency to want to think it and figure it out with the thinking mind. And uh, sometimes that really does have its place and its, its efficacy. But uh, what is it to trust the silence, trust the simplicity, let things settle and see what comes out of that, see what comes out of the silence. So certainly, coming into an environment like this, and some of you are very used to it, and some, some of you are less used to it, it's, it, you know, as social situations go, it's a pretty odd one. Uh, here we are, you know, 40 or 50 people, not really talking to each other, and yet living together, and spending a lot of time even in the same room, and eating together, and not, not talking. It's pretty rare, and you could look at it from the outside, and I know the neighbors think it's pretty odd, but uh, it, it, it is an unusual social situation. can seem, at first, to be kind of loveless or cold. Why, why aren't people connecting to each other? 
and can be for us that in the silence, not, not talking, not knowing so much about each other, that judgment comes in, how easily judgment comes in. We don't know someone. Why are they wearing that? Why are they breathing like that? Why are they eating like that? Why are they this? Da, 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 da. And not knowing, the judgment comes in. Of course, this can happen outside a retreat. I remember years ago, when I lived in America, one beautiful, beautiful summer day, I uh, just on a whim decided to go to the ocean. Uh, there was a lovely beach, uh, train ride away. And I went there, and I arrived, and after some time I saw an old man walking on the beach with a metal detector. And my immediate thought, my immediate assumption was, God, ridiculous. How can you be so, this is what went through my mind, how can you be so petty-minded and small-minded to be going around looking, seeing if you can find a rare coin that you can sell for a few dollars, and there's this glory of ocean and sky, and you're doing that. Just immediately, okay. <laughs> and luckily, he, he talked to me, because I was stuck in this very stupid uh, perception, assumption. And it turned out, this very old man, it turned out he was 80, 84, 85, was actually using this metal, it was all alone, um, going, trying to find bits of sharp metal that had been left on the beach so that people wouldn't hurt themselves, they wouldn't cut themselves. Completely the opposite. Yet in, in the non-speaking, this, this uh, assumption comes in, this judgment comes in, without knowing. We might judge someone here, and we have no idea what's going on for them. No idea in terms of health, in terms of life situation, in terms of piece of news they've just heard. And yet we just come in with a judgment and we don't know. And got talking to this old man and uh, he told me he, was, uh, he used to be a fisherman and uh, his wife got cancer. Many, this is a story from many years ago, and this was many years before that. His wife got cancer in America. He was a self-employed fisherman. He didn't have uh, health insurance. There's a scheme in America, as I'm sure some of you are aware, is uh, they don't have that infrastructure. And so he had to sell his whole fishing business to pay for his, uh, for his wife's treatment over some years. And lost everything, and then she died anyway. Now he was completely alone, a very old man, and just wanting to take care of people on the beach in this way. And everyone was ignoring him. It was just like an old man doing his... Th- and everyone else was ignoring him. And he said to me, uh, you know, after we talked some time, he said, thank you for talking to me. It was actually me that felt completely blessed by, by the interaction. Just such a lesson there. This silence here, even in the non-talking, actually has love in it. And if we can turn to it, if we can open to it, let go in it, we'll actually can begin to feel the love in the silence. And many of you, again, uh, I know, uh, will be aware, we're so used to connecting through words, through talking. When we let that go quiet, it can be that... uh, it's like another kind of sensitivity opens out in the being. And we, we begin to connect with each other 
through this other depth of sensitivity. Something very, very beautiful there. And I know people who have spent a long time in the hermitage know know that. It really impacts uh, sitting, walking, eating with someone, practicing with someone for a while, and then they leave. The time comes, their retreat's over, and they go. And it's a real, uh, there's a real sadness there. One is really connected, despite hardly having spoken to them. One can become very sensitive to the point where one's in the meditation hall, you know, 20 yards away from someone. Someone comes in, all we hear is the door, and we know who it is. There's some... Uh, vibration or sense of each other that's permeating through the silence and appreciation and connection flowing through that. So this journey into silence, this contemplative journey into silence is also actually, I would say, a journey into love. It's not different. So one is on retreat and been here. I know some of you have really just arrived in the last couple of days. But one's on retreat, and generally speaking, in a very non-linear way, the, the, the stillness, which is very related to science, the stillness of body, stillness of mind, stillness of being, begins to settle, begins to non-linear. It's definitely not linear, despite all the difficulties in the body being difficult and the mind not behaving. But generally speaking, there's there's a gradual settling of of the being into stillness. And this is not something that we force. It's not some macho thing. Uh, It's as if there's a kind of invitation, a gentle invitation into the stillness. We can follow that, be called by that. As the stillness begins to settle in the being, and the being begins to settle into the stillness, a sensitivity is born of that, or sensitivities are born of that. And one of them is actually a sensitivity to stillness and silence. And we begin to be in a very natural and caring way, not coming out of pressure. We begin to be uh, sensitive to the vibrations that we're putting out there in, in this environment sensitive to how we're walking down the hall, how we're opening and closing doors, just not wanting to cause too many ripples. And it's not coming out of fear, and it's not coming out of should. It's actually coming out of this care, love, sensitivity. The stillness is actually uh, permeating the body and emanating from the body. And we also are respectful of the stillness of others, wanting to take care of that wanting to take care of the whole climate of stillness and silence here. And again, nothing to do with being a good yogi, nothing to do with should, it's an allowing, actually coming out of love. Somehow in the stillness, sensitivities are born in the being or begin to unfold, to, to blossom in the being. And also receptivities. We begin to be, as the stillness and silence settles, the being can begin to become uh, receptive to a whole other sense of things in the silence, with the silence, through the silence. A receptivity emerging in the being. 
There's a beautiful poem by uh, the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda. I think some of you will know it. And it's about this. It's about the receptivity that's born out of silence and the, also the sense of uh, silence having within it a kind of unitive sense. In the silence, somehow it's, it's drawing the sense of us all together. This is something we can go into and feel. This poem is called Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to twelve and we'll all keep quiet. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us, as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. One way in, one way in, is to begin actually with listening. To begin with listening. There's plenty of ways in, but one way in is to begin with listening. giving attention to sounds and actually sounds are quite interesting because they come from lots of different directions and distances a sense of space can open up just being open to sounds open to listening and can kind of an expansive awareness can come and one's just listening and grounded in the body and the sensations of the body and letting that be part of the space and what do we notice what do we hear we hear sounds and actually right now, there's sounds and there's the space between sounds. What remains in the space? What's there? If we get a sense of silence, as you can often hear at night or, or any time, where is this silence? Where is it? Right now, if you listen to the sound, there's the voice and there's the quiet hum of the heating. Just listen to the bare sound, open to the bare sound. 
as we sustain that kind of meditation, can be that the sense of silence begins to permeate the sound itself. Begins to permeate the sound. So it feels like, can seem like, the sound actually is the same substance as the silence. Can you hear right now the voice? It's the same as silence. So when we go deeper into silence, it's not so much that we're talking about the absence of sound. Now, of course, that helps, and that's why Guy House is here and not Runway 5 at Heathrow or whatever. But it's not so much the absence of sound, nor actually is it about the absence of thought. So we do find ourselves with uh, thought coming and going in practice, and sometimes very uh, thickly, or we're obsessing about something. Sometimes we, uh, when there's obsessive thought, can be really helpful to look in the body and center in the body and see, is there an emotion that's driving this, uh, this thought going round and round and round? Actually connect with the physicality of the emotion, bring the energy down help it lose its momentum, its energy. Other times we're just caught in a, in a whirlpool of obsessive thought uh, because, because we believe that something is going to make a difference. We're thinking, uh, it should be like this, or should it be this or this, or whatever it is that we're obsessing about. And at some level we believe that it really makes a difference. What am I believing makes a difference? And is that enough to keep the thought spiraling round and round? And then there are times when there's just the sort of flotsam and jetsam of, of thought. It's nothing particular. It's just a little bit of thought coming in and out of the mind. That's fine. When it's not about the absence of sound, it's not about the absence of thought. It's more about the relationship with sound and the relationship with thought. This is so, so crucial. Can we work with a relationship with sound and a relationship with thought that we are letting go and relaxing of relaxing the pushing away of what we don't like and relaxing the pulling grasping on of what we want and want to keep and we we let that push and pull just die down we just keep relaxing it just keep relaxing it hugely significant As we do that, as, as the, the push and pull that we usually have with experience all day long, as that begins to settle and relax, I don't know quite how to put it, but something begins to unfold. Something, Things start to happen. They happen together. It's not so linear cause and effect. I want to go into this a little bit. One of the things that can begin to happen is what seemed irrelevant the touch of the foot on the earth, the touch of the foot on the carpet. Something we tend to think of as so irrelevant and insignificant. That begins to become uh, more 
relevant, more significant, more alive for us. And what had seemed so significant begins to fade. This simple touch of things is our life. We tend to think of our life as me and what I've done and what I'm going to do and how I define myself and and, uh, the whole realm of the personal world. Something can happen. This is so precious. Something can happen in the silence, in the relaxing of this push and pull. The whole sense of the significance of the personal world can quieten get the sense in the silence that the, the whole sense of the personal world is not really what it's all about. It's not really what it's all about. What seemed irrelevant begins to take prominence. And we see this personal world, which I, I tend to think is so significant, was actually is actually built up by memory, by mind, by a lot of basically mental huffing and puffing. We build up the sense of the personal world and, and, and it seems to have such significance. In the science, we begin to see maybe it doesn't. Maybe the things that we completely overlook begin to stand out with another kind of uh, pristine significance, pristine beauty. So what I do, what I did, what I'm going to do, how I define myself, all that seems dwarfed in the face of the mystery of things. There can be this sense of silence. We can practice in this way, just letting go of the push and the pull that we have with experience. Sometimes what can happen is a person has a sense of... um, Perhaps silence, but perhaps also space. A sense of space opens up. Expansive awareness. And so a person might relate to a sense of silence or a sense of space or a sense of kind of the awareness, the spacious awareness in which everything seems to happen. Whatever it is, however way we might relate to it, any of those ways, the silence, the awareness, the space, the space of awareness, whatever it is, can begin to feel like it embraces everything. Everything that happens, happens within the embrace of this vast silence, vast space, vast awareness. It accommodates everything. And we can let everything be accommodated by the silence. Everything belongs to the silence. Let everything belong to the silence. So this silence or this space, the the birth of anything, a sensation, a feeling, a thought, a sound, whatever it is, it's born out of the silence. It has its life in the silence and it dies back into the silence, into the space, into the awareness, whatever you want to call it however you want to see it. Fade, we can literally tune in to this sense of silence and everything fading into the silence. Again, right now with the voice. Sound is just fading into the silence. 
everything is just fading into the silence. The body sensations arise and they fade into the silence. Seeing this, the more we let go of this struggle with experiences, pushing away what we don't like and pulling towards us what we do like, the more this sense of space, sense of silence, begins to be prominent, to stand out to consciousness. And the more the sense of silence, somehow the easier to let go. Just let everything belong to the silence. Let everything belong to the silence. The more we do that, the less suffering there is. It's actually quite simple. We can do something we can really see. So I don't know. Maybe some people are, are listening, and it, it may sound a little abstract. I'm not sure. I hope not. I'm talking about very practical things. But this is something we can see. We let go of the push and pull, and less suffering. There's something else too. Something else too. We let go of the push and the pull and the struggle with experience. We let it all belong to the silence. And the things and the events, the experiences, begin to be less prominent to consciousness. They begin to fade a little bit. This is quite uh, remarkable. You can actually notice the more we let things belong to the silence, the more they quieten, recede. We can begin to get a very real sense for the texture of the silence itself. The actual, uh, almost palpable texture of silence. As it's something, the air is resonant with silence, it's almost thick with silence. A sense of the texture of that space. Wordsworth, long, many years ago, the poet Wordsworth, a sense of something far more deeply interfused, a sense of something sublime. I'm misquoting Wordsworth, terrible. A sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused. Something begins to show itself to consciousness, something very beautiful, very sublime. And again, like what I was talking about with the sounds, they seem to be the same fabric. They seem to be of the same substance as silence. It can begin to be that all experiences seem to be like that. The body sensations, the sounds, the thoughts, the emotions, all of it seems to be the same. It is silence. It is space. It is awareness, however we're relating to that. If this seems really abstract now, I, I really apologize. I hope that you can just hear it as a possibility. Possibility. Maybe for some people it's talking about what's actually going on right now. If not, just, just hear it as a possibility. Just as some, some avenue of, of possible practice. What I'm talking about is not, not something totally alien and totally impossible. And this sense of silence, of space, can seem to surround and permeate all experience, everything. 
shot through with silence. And in that, we, the being, we begin to lose our preoccupation with objects, with things, with events. We lose, we let go of our preoccupation with objects and things and events. That's the, the, the default state of consciousness is to be preoccupied with things that are going on internally or externally so-called. We're preoccupied. We like, we don't like. We want more, we want less. We're preoccupied with objects. So what I'm wanting to point to is, is a way of practicing that can open out beyond the preoccupation with objects. And a person can, in that, begin to ask themselves, what is real here? What is real? What am I giving significance and substance to by struggling, by the push and the pull? I'm actually building things up by entanglement, by involvement. I'm giving substance and solidity and significance to things, to events. You can see this process. And then one begins to just not get involved in that, or get involved less and less. And the substance, the solidity, the significance goes out of things correspondingly. And one begins to wonder, what is real then? Who am I? Who am I when there's not a lot happening in the silence? When I'm actually not giving significance and substance to things? Who am I? And the self has nothing to build on. We tend to think of ourselves as involved in some kind of becoming from the past through the present into the future, becoming something. In the silence and letting go of this preoccupation, am I this becoming that I usually define myself as? Am I this becoming? In, in this whole, I don't really know what to call it, movement into silence that happens together, the whole tendency for self-definition, the whole way we have of binding ourselves and imprisoning ourselves with self-definition, I'm like this, I'm like that, I did this, so it means I'm like that, just begins to be loosened, not defining oneself. We, we define ourselves less and less less and less self-concern. All this dies down, and then what? And then what? So this may seem, when we're listening to it, well, okay, very well, but I just want a little less suffering in my life. But to understand suffering, we actually have to understand this process of how we're giving significance and substance and solidity to things, how that process works, and how the self gets built up as well. Zen Master Dogen, very famous quote, to study the way, to study the Buddha way, is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. It doesn't stop there. To be enlightened by all things is to drop body and mind to drop body and mind means to drop the concern with body and mind 
like I said, typical state of consciousness, nothing to judge here, it's just what consciousness does, is to be preoccupied with objects, events, things, particularly the state of body and mind, and how body and mind is doing. Drop body-mind, drop body-mind, drop the concern with body-mind. Begin can begin to get a sense that actually maybe our experiences don't define us. Actually maybe our experiences don't have any inherent power to imprison us or constrict us in any real way. They just don't have that power. We give them that. We give them that. Perhaps our true nature is undefinable. Begin to get a sense that the experience of our, experiences of our life, they're almost just like ripples on the surface of this great silence. So the some things of life with which we are typically concerned, the some things, the this and the that, begin to recede. And the nothing, the nothingness, begins to stand out. And we don't usually give much attention to nothingness. And maybe our freedom and happiness and our well-being in life maybe depend more on these moments of stillness and of silence than on uh, this event or getting this or this happening or whatever. Which is where we usually look for a sense of fulfillment. And then we get tired of all that and we want to turn the world off. Had enough. want to go to sleep. or want to get away from the world. Perhaps it begins to dawn on us. Maybe, maybe at one level, this whole effort, continuous effort that we seem to be engaged in, to find a kind of comfort with some things, with a place, I want to be there, I'm here, but I want to be there, it was better over there, or with time, it'll be better when, or it was better when, or with self, want to get ourself just so and the personality just so. Maybe the whole effort for, for finding comfort with some things, if we put too much energy into that, maybe we're missing the mystery of what is not a something. A mystery of some otherness. Something else. That's not actually in life how we usually think of life. It's very hard to relate uh, to the spiritual practice in terms of, well, of course I want it to be about life and I want something in life, but maybe there's something beyond that in the Christian mystical tradition. They talk about the, the via positiva and the via negativa, beautiful concepts. The via negativa is about this letting go of some things, letting go of looking for fulfillment in some things, in our life and in the moment, and, and, and in a way opening to, to the nothing, 
So we can practice in this way. We can begin to get through the listening, and, and as, as I described, we can begin to get a real feel for silence, really to feel it, uh, feel ourselves in the silence and embraced by it, feel it impinge on the being, feel it touch the heart, become really familiar with the texture and the, the fabric of silence. Rumi said, live in the nothing which you came from. Live in the nothing which you came from. And sometimes you get a glimpse what freedom that would be to actually be nothing and to have nothing. It can sound horrific or can get a sense of the beauty of that, to be nothing and to have nothing not to define oneself, not to conceive of one's life and always be referencing events in terms of self, not to give the usual stuff significance. How does it sound? How does it sound? Does it sound dreadful and dire and bleak? Or can... Can we hear the beauty in it? Not to be infatuated with things and objects. Not, or even less, to define the world. And in that, we begin to get a sense of the self and the usual way we bind the self in definition and constricted with that. And the world, defining the world, that begins to be unbound, unbound. And can get a sense, an intuitive sense of something other, something not of self, not of the world, not of time, that can begin to shine through. And, you know, we do tend to think of our fulfillment lying in experiences and things and events and situations. But this something other, no experience can get near it. No experience comes close to it. Sometimes the, as I say, getting familiar with this silence and, and, and the feel of it, there's actually it has qualities, or it can, it can seem to have qualities. Sometimes a person opens to this and it actually feels like it has love in it. It really has a sense of love uh, in the silence, through the silence. And it's not me loving you, or you loving me. It's something almost impersonal, universal. One just feels oneself to be in love, literally. and not to hurry through that kind of uh, opening. But in a way where all this is going is not so much to make a thing even out of the silence, because when we make a thing out of something, then we make suffering in relation to it. So eventually it even goes beyond 
the sense of space or the sense of silence being a thing or the sense of awareness, the space of awareness, all that is in the realm of perception. And the movement is actually to even let go of that. But no hurry, no hurry with that. If we can, in the very simple way I describe, begin listening, begin listening to silence, opening to silence. It will reveal its qualities to us. And one of those qualities is love. And a, uh, a universal love, an infinite kind of love. Not to hurry through that and say, oh, that's just a perception too. It is, but to let that do its work on the being. And the movement, as I say, is actually eventually to go beyond. We're drawn into this something other, opened out, unbound into something other. Thomas Merton has this beautiful uh, phrase, the palace of nowhere, the palace of nowhere. Actually, language can't really go there. Language can't go there. So when we speak about mindfulness, and we speak about mindfulness a lot in this tradition, as you know, mindfulness is actually of objects in relation to objects. We're mindful of breathing, we're mindful of uh, body sensations, etc., feelings, emotions. Mindfulness is of objects. But eventually we go beyond objects and perceptions, eventually, and let go of our infatuation with objects, and we can even be infatuated with the sense of space or a sense of the awareness in which it all happens. So that's not to put that down. Sometimes uh, we are interested in this objectless meditation, moving into that. Other times we're very interested in objects and mindfulness to objects and the things and the experiences and uh, the events of our life. So both make up practice, and it's a very beautiful thing, as I, I know I know you know, to give attention, very caring, lovely attention to things, to the things that make up our world, that make up our life. What is it in the silence here, you get up in the morning, and to dress, the simple act of dressing, which we do every day, and to do that with... A uh, real care of attention, attention to things, attention to uh, drinking a cup of tea. What is it to really be present to that? To the sound of the wind, the textures of our life, the experiences, the things of our life. So it's not only that we're interested in going uh, beyond objects and letting that go. This otherness, this otherness can get a sense of it also through objects, also through things. But we can only sense that in things when our relationship to them has nothing to do with their pleasantness or their unpleasantness. We can only sense this otherness shining through things when we've let go 
of our entanglement, our involvement, our infatuation, our reactivity to the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of things. We could, in theistic language, we could say we can only sense God through the senses when we're not relating, when we're not caught up in senses as a source of pleasant and unpleasant. Then something else can begin to shine through. Just finally, uh, Sariputta was the disciple of the Buddha, chief in wisdom, foremost in wisdom, the Buddha described him, Sariputta. And he said once, greed, aversion, and delusion, what's called the three kilesas, these seeds that we keep producing, greed, aversion, delusion, are makers of measurement they are makers of measurement and makers of signs. What's going to say? It's a strange thing to say, but really worth meditating on. Something very profound here. This involvement that we have through delusion with greed for what's pleasant and aversion to what's unpleasant, it makes things, uh, makes us measure things more or less. We want more of this, less of that. It makes things actually stand out as being this or that. Makes, makes the this and that, the dualities of life, stand out to consciousness. So greed and aversion and delusion is a maker of measurement. It's a maker of significance through wanting the pleasant, wanting to grab hold of it, wanting to push away the unpleasant. Things gain their significance. They gain, in, we, we start measuring things. I don't like this, I want more of it, I want less of it. They begin to stand out in consciousness. They begin to become prominent. Greed, aversion, delusion are makers of appearance. They are makers of appearance. When we understand this, really, really go into understand it in the heart and, and can see it working, we begin to let go. We can begin to practice letting go. Letting go. And in that letting go that comes out of the understanding of this, what is immeasurable, what is truly immeasurable, begins to be revealed. We're not cutting things into boxes, measuring. We're not drawing this out, drawing that out, pushing that away. Something else that is not of things not of self, not of the world, not of time, something that is immeasurable begins to shine through. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.